Well, good morning. We are wrapping up our pre-Advent series, preparing our hearts for the uh, coming celebration of uh, Christmas. And as we've kind of bridging the gap between our practice of simplicity in the fall and the celebration of Christmas that's ahead of us, we've gone through these various scenes from the life and the teaching of Jesus. Uh, but this morning, we're ending with a scene from the Nativity. It might be like the most straightforward Advent passage of them all. It's the one where the Magi come and offer their worship. Um, and Jesus' conviction in his preaching, in, in his teaching, and in his embrace of the simple life is that our hearts are formed by what it is that we worship. Um, and so desire and hope and longing and anticipation, all these emotions that get woken up by the objects of our deepest affections. And if it's true that we end up spending our time and our energy and our resources on the things that matter most to us, then all of that kind of confronts us with this question that we've been circling about for the last four weeks, is that what exactly in the way that we spend is the thing that we're worshiping when it comes to Christmas? The writers of the book Advent Conspiracy describe the dilemma that we've been uh, circling around like this. The things we desire are the things we worship. During Advent, a time of conspicuous consumption, we need to look closely at what we desire. Let's think beyond the well-rehearsed responses and strive to discover what is really in our hearts. I love this season. It's, it's like the, it is the most magical time of the year. Uh, it's my favorite time in the life of the church. I mean, Easter still wins for the best day, but I love like the Advent season, I love the candles, I love the lights that will soon be up. They're already up around Decatur Square uh, and the reeds and all that stuff. And it's just this reminder that the darkness cannot overcome the light that has broken into the world. But it always gets a little bit muddy over, you know, the weeks uh, between Thanksgiving and, uh, and, and, and the start of Christmas. The cultural script is going to tell us collectively that we can actually spend our way into making things merry and bright. Or we can embrace the inner light of joy or whatever is inside of us. Uh, and a curious thing happens where this season where it should be the easiest time to celebrate the kingdom that is breaking into the world actually becomes the time when for many of us it's hardest to experience it. I've been a pastor for nearly 20 years and every year people describe a disconnect between the story that they know by heart and the one that they end up living. And I can't help but think that it's because some of the practices that we have picked up along the way of the overstuffed calendars and the overstuffed stockings, they actually lead us down the road to a different kingdom altogether. But then again, the reason that these practices are so powerful is because they touch up against our truest longings that we have, this, this, this place where we are able to love and be loved. And all these rituals, they, they kind of get close, but they move just a couple degrees off center. And so this season of joy and hope is always gets mingled with a little bit of discontent. And the thing about discontent is it's always fueled by desire. And until we learn how to desire the right things, the paradox is that desire will always follow or be followed by discontentment. But here's the hope. Maybe it's a holy discontent. It's put there to draw you toward God, toward the one who made you for himself, whose desire is for you. 
And I think that's why everyone in the Advent story has the same response when they come to Bethlehem. Mary ponders in her heart, reveling in the blessing that she was chosen to carry God into the world. Joseph responds with obedience and with the humility of laying himself down in the face of of scorn and mockery and ridicule. Uh, The shepherds, they leave their fields, and then they end up leaving the stable rejoicing. And then these wise men come bearing gifts as a way of throwing their lot in with the new kingdom. Each one of these things is a posture of worship. And so that's the last stop on our little pre-Advent journey. Uh, We started by scaling back, spending on ourselves, focusing on gifts of presence instead of simply giving presents, taking that impulse toward generosity and the joy of giving and turning it toward those who have real needs. Also, we can be free from the cultural captivity and have hearts that are ready to worship fully. So with that in mind, let us hear from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and please pray with me as we come to this reading of God's word. Spirit of the living God, we ask that you would speak to us in the longing, in the hoping, in the rejoicing that as we come to your word, we would not simply be hearers, but we would be moved by it, transformed by it, and by the grace that you offer to us in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, the one who is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and all the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi in secret and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. That's right. (laughs) After that, they had heard the king, and they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, I've always loved this story of the Magi. Uh, I love it because they're Gentiles, they're outsiders to Israel's story, and it's a, a way of Matthew saying from the very beginning of his gospel that this kingdom that's breaking into the world, it defies any sort of ethnic or tribalistic boundary markers. It is a kingdom for everyone. But I also love it because it is essentially an epic road trip. 
And I don't know, maybe it's because it's my imagination was shaped by the desert highways that cut through the vast landscape of the West, but I've always loved the feeling of being out on the open road. Uh, my first experience of that was, uh, was when I was a kid, my parents went uh, to... Uh, we went through Albuquerque, and there was this amazing lightning storm off in the distance. Uh, we were on our way from our home in Bakersfield off to Dallas, Texas, where they were uh, part of one of those weird, like, uh, quasi-religious, self-esteem, positive-thinking cults that were really big back in the 80s. You know those? So is this just a West Coast thing? Because, like, I said that in the first service, and they're like, dude, yeah, maybe, maybe it is just West Coast. Portland, right? All right, well... Take it for what it's worth. You missed out on a whole thing. Uh, but I've driven across the U.S. six times since then and across Canada once. Fastest Jill and I ever did it was just under 36 hours going from Vegas to Virginia. Uh, and I got to tell you, if you ever want to test your marriage, do a cannonball run in a Honda Civic. But I don't know what it is. I think that, you know, these, these idea of road trips has kind of saturated the, it's American literature. It's kind of gotten into the popular imagination. And, and maybe it's like that for you. Maybe, you know, the idea of being out on the road first got into your mind because of teenage angst you were experiencing or uh, the restlessness that comes from living in a one-horse town or a season of disillusionment after your dream job you realized was just that. It was a dream and then you woke up from the dream. Or maybe it's that, you know, we've got this ancestral pattern of migration woven deep down into our bones. Or maybe it's the hope that you'll find something new, that you'll find transcendence, that you'll find liberation or escape. Maybe it's searching for a spiritual mother or father. Maybe it's even searching for the holy. But there are a thousand different reasons that the road calls out to us. And most of the time, we're looking for something, right? Or we're looking for someone convinced that something is missing, even if we're not quite sure what that something is. I mean, I think about it when we're, when we're younger, right? You're, you're looking for a place to belong, and so you shed identities like last year's fashion. You try to find the one that fits, and so you find one that works for a little while, and then you get on the road to try something else. And, and the thing is, you, you don't need a, a, a car or gasoline to make the trip. You can be a million miles away in your own heart on some sort of existential journey, just anywhere that gets you away from the here that is keeping you down. There's a character in Jack Kerouac's novel, On the Road, uh, named Mississippi Jean, of whom he writes this. He had no place he could stay in without getting tired of it. Because there was nowhere to go but everywhere. Keep rolling under the stars. I think we all got a little bit of Mississippi gene in us. And the thing is, it's always been like that. The Psalms are full of songs that the Israelites would sing as they made their ascent on the road from Jericho to Zion. They were looking for God. They were looking for transcendence. They were looking for the presence of the holy made tangible in the temple. And every year, hundreds of thousands of Muslims rearrange their lives to make the Hajj to Mecca. Medieval pilgrims would go on the road to Canterbury or traverse the, the Camino Santiago looking for Jesus in the face of the 10,000 people they met along the way. We're born restless. And my guess is that the road appeals and it's become such an enduring metaphor because 
it's all about our desire. It's the thing that's gonna take us from where we are to where we want to be, or at least offer us a little bit of promise that we might become someone along the way. But the point is that no one who wasn't chasing desire ever set out on the open road. And maybe that's just at least in part why Matthew includes this little road trip of the Magi at the beginning of his gospel. Because we've always been searching, always been desperate for something to help us out along the way, always looking for that kingdom where our hearts will find its rest and find our true home. Think about Matthew's description of the Magi is it's not very detailed. We don't have a whole lot to go on. Uh, Biblical scholar Dale Bruner says that they were most likely scholars of the stars from Persia, Babylonia. And in antiquity, you may know this, the the line between astrology and astronomy was really kind of blurry. There was this widely held conviction that if something important was happening on earth, it would be reflected in the stars and, and vice versa. If something was happening in the stars, that must mean that there was something cataclysmic or, or hopeful or good breaking into the world. If you see it reflected in the night sky, that means something is afoot. And so they, they noticed this shift in the star patterns and they set out for the open road toward Jerusalem. They're looking for the one that the ancient stories said would be the king of the Jews. I mean, that's as good a reason to hit the road as any. And they set out without a whole lot of available information, right? There's no angelic voices breaking into the night in their story, no Miraculous visitations from angels about the birth. Uh, The heavens didn't open up. No one even really here is talking much to God. I mean, these are Gentiles after all. But they're paying attention to the world around them, the, the stars, the world, the skies. They're paying attention to that restless longing in their own hearts that would lead them like a compass needle toward the kingdom, the thing that they hoped would spell an end to all their journeys. And so they come to Jerusalem they come upon a kingdom. And this one's ruled by Herod, who's, you know, twisting his mustache or whatever it is that villains do. And he ruled through bribery, through flattery, through violence, who in his age, he actually, historians tell us, he was paranoid enough to murder all of his sons. He was by no means a loved guy. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that when Herod was on his deathbed, he actually rounded up all of the nobility of Jerusalem and had them killed at the moment he drew his last breath, just so there would be crying at his funeral. So that was Herod. And maybe that helps explain this line. When King Herod heard this news about the king, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. If a paranoid king is disturbed, he has a way of shooting that anxiety throughout the whole kingdom. But for all that, if you just go by the numbers, Herod actually seemed to have a pretty successful administration. He he kept order. He oversaw all these massive building projects, including these drastic improvements to the temple. Uh, He brought in several aqueducts from, you know, the Roman technology. He had a massive fortress, which he named after himself, like you do. And although he taxed people heavily to pay for all of these building projects, he also kept them from starving when tough times hit. He kept the Romans out of the temple. So people didn't love him. But he did enough to just kind of numb them to the reality that they were an occupied people. 
And so maybe the obvious thing for these travelers is when they come upon this kingdom, when the, when the trail gets cold and the star isn't visible anymore, they could just say, well, I mean, I guess this is it. I guess we're here. I mean, this guy goes by the title King of the Jews. But for some reason that Matthew doesn't explain, they, they know, no, this isn't the kingdom we're looking for. And maybe that's because Matthew's point isn't really about a star or astronomical curiosity. And maybe it's because it's not a charming story about, you know, strange kings coming meekly to bring baby Jesus birthday presents. Maybe in his telling of the story, this is actually political dynamite. As the biblical scholar N.T. Wright puts it, if Jesus is king, then Herod and every other person who wears the crown is simply a parody And if that's true, then Herod's whole kingdom is a sham. The one who rules by domination, by military power, by making a name for himself, is worlds apart from the one who came in vulnerability, in solidarity with the poor, who who poured his life out in self-sacrificing love. And the crazy thing is, it doesn't take these wanderers a a whole lot of time to kind of size this thing up. They take one look at Herod's kingdom and conclude, no, this isn't it. We got to get back on the road. And so as the story goes, they come to Herod's and his priests and his scribes, they come together. These are the people whose job it is to interpret the scriptures for for Israel. And they're able to tell them exactly what the prophet Micah said. They're able to tell them exactly where the child is going to be born. Which means they had the information the whole time. And this is a pretty crazy detail of the story if you just think about it for a second. I mean, they knew all the stories. They read all the scrolls. They listened to all the TED Talks and all the podcasts, right? They knew all the way that this was going to go down. And they didn't do anything with it. And so there's this contrast right here in the heart of the story that I think we're meant to see. These outsiders go on a journey searching for something because they've got this burning desire for the kingdom. And even though they don't know the whole story or they don't know how it's all going to end, it's enough to get them out on the road. And then there are the ones who know the story by heart, who, who grew up on it. They, they've marked out all of the, the road signs. They've dialed in all the coordinates. They've, they've gotten so at home, though, in another kingdom that they stopped believing that there's something at the end of the road that's going to cure their restless souls. They live in the kingdom that's just good enough. And the thing is, the end of this road is is just a few miles away in Bethlehem. They're like 90% of the way there. But they say, essentially, yeah, I mean, that's in Bethlehem, but but trust us, it's it's no Jerusalem. It's kind of like how New Yorkers think about, like, Iowa or whatever. I mean, you're not going to find anything better than this. So, yeah, you can go there if you want. You go ahead and go. You tell me if you find anything. And I wonder if that's not where we sometimes find ourselves. For thousands of years, followers of Jesus have been celebrating Christmas. We've been announcing that the kingdom has come, that that this this grace of God that has broken into the world, that changed everything, that frees us from the power of sin and death. This, This kingdom has come. It is here. It will come again. The hope of the world is available. It's all here. It's an open secret. But that story has somehow made itself an odd home in a culture that prizes the journey, that loves the idea of being out on the open road, loves the search for meaning, 
But at the same time, it gets a little bit skeptical if you think that you actually found something. Maybe it's even cynical about whether there is something to find at all. I was rereading a book by Dallas Willard a little while ago, and an observation has struck me. He writes this. For centuries now, our culture has cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. The fashion of the age has identified mental sharpness with a posture, not with genuine intellectual method and character. Therefore, only a very hardy individualist or social rebel or one desperate for another life stands a chance of discovering the substantiality of the spiritual life today. Only one desperate enough for another life. Kind of helped me see in this story a new, a new light. You, you and I, see, we can, we can know all about the kingdom. But are you desperate enough for another kind of life to actually do something with what you know? And the only real question left for us maybe over the next little while here is what are you going to do to prepare him room to hear this Christmas story anew? Because the thing is, we don't really believe something by saying that we believe it. We don't even really believe something by believing that we believe it. No, we only believe something if we actually act as if it were true. And the real wisdom of the Magi isn't in this restless search that caused them to get out on the open road. It's the fact that they followed it to the one who could actually hold all of their desire. As Matthew tells the story, the first thing they do at the end of all their searching is they fall to their knees in worship. They lay down all of the gifts that they were carrying. At the end of the road, at the place where the star finds its rest, is also the place where their hearts find their rest. So yeah, I mean, this is a journey I've always loved because it transformed them. A good trip always does that. The road plays a part for sure, but it's what they found at the end of the road that really was the thing that caused them to be overjoyed. Matthew ends the scene by noting that they went home by another way, which means that when they went home, they bypassed Herod's kingdom altogether. And I wonder if the same opportunity isn't there waiting for us. What if the kingdom in which we find ourselves, the one that tells us every year that the way to get the most out of it is to, is to gear yourself toward accumulation and toward excess, maybe what if that's not the road that actually leads to joy? What if it's actually laying the gifts down? What if instead the road markers are simple gifts given in love? What if it's being present to each other, serving others, what if all that is a surer way to prepare our hearts for worship, to receive the gift of the kingdom that has come into the world? And I wonder if it isn't the case that the kingdom that we get stuck in, or the one that, that numbs us, just enough to keep us off the road, just from going that little extra bit further, isn't the kingdom in which we find ourselves. The writer Ann Patchett offers this insight. The things we buy and buy and buy are like a thick coat of Vaseline smeared on glass. We can see some shapes out there, light and dark, but in our constant craving for what we may still want, we miss too many of life's details. Clever little inversion of Paul's seeing through a mirror dimly. What if we cleared the windshield to see just enough that there was a different road available? Maybe that might involve going in reverse and taking a different fork. 
But the question I have for us as we get ready for this season, well, it's really, I propose a, a sort of roadmap based in this idea of simplicity. What if you made your own advent calendar? But instead of putting on it all the things that you're going to do, you scale back by taking a bunch of things off. All those things that feel like the weight of obligation, that feel like you're in somebody else's kingdom. <laughs> Maybe some of those things you can get yourself out of. But all those things that feel like they're just one more way of going about it. But they don't orient your heart to the hope of the kingdom. And what if you started to slowly and prayerfully kind of put things back on that will help you be present to God and others, that will help you serve joyfully so that you can worship more fully? Because here's the thing about all that restlessness. You can't actually worship what your heart isn't aiming for. And so we've been given this season that's coming ahead. Five weeks from tomorrow is Christmas Day. To prepare our hearts to worship, it's designed to help us see because we're all out on the road in hope of searching and seeing the Savior for ourselves. But in order to see, we have to be involved in this worship. If you just sit in here, all of this worship then just becomes another way of being busy. And so you have to enter with a posture of expectancy to let the familiar story that you hear this year tell your story. And over the next coming weeks, trust that the Spirit will prepare room in your heart and lead you down the road where every longing and every hope are met. Join me in prayer. Almighty God, we are thankful that in Jesus, your kingdom came into the world, that you promised that it's here, as near to us as our next breath. And so God, we ask that in these days ahead, in these weeks ahead, then the joy of the gathering and the joy of being with one another, we would take the time to truly be present to one another, be present to you, that see the world that you have made is good. Re-enchant our imaginations with the glory of the story, made visible in the one who came to be with us, in whose name we pray. Amen.